I want you to know that my original intent was to go from Titus 1 through 10, but as I started writing it, I realized that would be cruel and unusual punishment, so I split this one up, but those verses all work uh, together, and so I call this one all spiritually functional, because uh, that's the driving idea in a healthy church that all will be functional, part one. Uh, and I put as an intro that I love watching an amazing athlete uh, play their game, but I recognize that as I'm watching that person play their game, that if they don't have the whole team contributing, they're rarely going to win the championship. It takes the whole team uh, to gain the top prize. And it doesn't matter if you're watching soccer, football, uh, basketball, any team sport ties into that. And I was thinking of uh, watching this past World Cup. And for those of you who don't know what World Cup is, that's soccer or football around the world, but it's soccer here. And I was watching the World Cup, and obviously Messi, uh, Argentinian player, uh, probably arguably the best player that's ever played the game, uh, he won his World Cup, first one. But you recognize something. He couldn't win it on his own. It took the solid performance of his teammates all around him to make that possible. Uh, and I used to watch basketball, and I, I always listened to the commentators because you'd watch, and there's certain stars on the team, and you're there to see what they're going to do on the, on the court, uh, five on five. But every commentator, it seems, talked about how the game was not going to hinge on the star's performance. That was an expectation, but that was going to hinge on the team's performance. Uh, I don't know how many times I listened to them say it's going to take the sixth man, the first guy off the bench, and how he performs is what's going to make the team win. And the idea is this, it takes the whole team to correctly function and to win. And as we're looking through Titus, and this is, again, Paul writing to uh, his lieutenant, you say, his son in the faith. He's trained uh, this guy to, to be there. He's left him on Crete uh, to build healthy churches. And he's writing to him. And, and the truth, as, as we're looking at teams and sports, if you look at the whole congregation functioning, the whole team functioning uh, for success, that becomes even more vital when we look at the church. For a church to be healthy, it requires all in the church to be functioning. And so Paul is transitioning his letter from condemnation. We ended chapter one with the idea of condemnation of the words and work of false teachers. And he says they don't do anything that benefits God's kingdom. They undermine and destroy, and, and we talked about how we're not to be seeking for the truth that might be in a false teacher, but instead recognizing that they're going to destroy, and they're, they're there to destroy. Well, Paul shifts drastically and says to Titus now, but Titus isn't a false teacher, and he says, I want you to speak or teach truth. Verse 1 says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And that word translated speak in Greek, is a word referring to ordinary conversation. It's talking and doing in everyday life that which lines up to real Christianity. And so what he tells Titus is, I want you to live out your faith, and I want your life and your conversation to be constrained around sound doctrine. And just to remind us again, that means his words in life are centered on God's truth. It's a whole and healthy view of God's truth, which is prompting spiritual growth. And, and so what he's telling Titus is, you have false teachers, and we've, we've landed here, who are talking and doing things, and people are getting enamored by them possibly, but they, they do no good. They are not healthy. They're not causing the church to grow. They're not reaching the lost. They're doing nothing for God's kingdom. But you need to make sure that everything you say in everyday life 
So the most casual of things is going to be centered around sound doctrine. And he's showing something in this, that the fruit of right doctrine is seen in righteous living. That what you teach, you are going to live. And, and Titus' communication is to be directed to the whole church because it's crucial for a healthy church to have all spiritually functional as we, Christ's body and his church, fulfill his great commission. Titus is to be focused on the evangelistic impact of the church. MacArthur notes this about this. He says the entire chapter 2 deals with the evangelistic impact of a spiritually healthy congregation and gives direct practical instruction about how believers are to live for the purpose of showing sinners the power and joy of salvation. Titus chapter 2 the majority of it is, is how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to communicate, how we're supposed to walk in our everyday life in a way that is going to point people to Christ. It is evangelistic. Another writer notes of the whole letter of Titus, he says, we see the whole church with vital functions to fulfill. And now Paul stresses the necessary practical working out of salvation in the daily lives of the congregation. And so he's driving home this, this idea. Here is these overarching principles, and now we're getting into how we act. And how we act is directly related to how we're going to be used in Christ's kingdom. Are we going to be a church that is a light for him, that is a clear beacon as we're supposed to be, or are we going to be confusing, or are we going to be more like the false teachers? And so he, he's telling Titus, you need to say, you need to teach these concepts. Now, what he's about to say are not easy things to implement. It's no casual checklist. It flies counterculturally. As we walk through this list, there's going to be many things that don't line up with what our culture likes or wants to see done. It's going to be battling uh, philosophies, and we'll get into it in, in a couple weeks, some of these deep-seated philosophies that, that rear their head in different formats that go against what God says, that, that promote the agenda of Satan and the world. And it, so these things aren't going to be simple, but these things are necessary. They're true and necessary. And I put here, the Holy Spirit through Paul does not stutter as he gives strong, straightforward, and specific instructions to the church. I say that because you want to be prepared to have your toes stepped on a little bit, that it is going to be confrontational. And it's going to confront maybe how you've thought about something for a long time. It's how you maybe perceive what you should be doing. But the Holy Spirit's not giving you a suggestion. He's giving you a command on how you are going to live and how you should display or act in this world. So specific directions. And now what's interesting is these directions are pinpointed to different stages of life. I'm going to say this multiple times as we walk through. Just because we're dealing with older men and older women, it doesn't mean everyone else just checks out of this. This is, well, that's not me. The idea is that Paul is using the group that best exemplifies this to show what the church all needs to do, but specifically addressing this stage of life. And actually, he closes it all out, not looking at stages of life, but closes out looking at uh, the concept of employment and work and the impact that will have in being a testimony for Christ. And so the list begins with instructions to the older men. And don't look at your neighbor wondering who the older man is 
in the group. I'm going to let you know what he's referring to. So he starts off that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Now, when Paul referred to himself as aged, he was over the age of 60. And in ancient Greek literature, we see that word used for people as young as 50. And my point is this, when you read the word aged men, it is talking about people in the final third of life. This is not talking about a middle-aged man, and I was just happy not to be part of the aged because I'm here right before 50. I got a few more years before I slip into the group, and so I just feel like, whew, I dodged a bullet on this sermon. Um, But either way, uh, aged men are those in their final third of life. They're past middle-aged, and they're called to be examples in the church of those who live a holy life before the Lord and the world. They should have abandoned any semblance of recklessness or thoughtlessness. They're to be reliable and not consumed or indulging themselves with their rights or emotions. Instead, they're to be sober, it says. And sober has this idea of being clear-headed. Older men, and again, I'm going I'm to mention this, it doesn't mean we check out What's the call to older men is he's driving into a specific group and they become the best illustration of it, the best uh, targeted audience, but it's for the whole church to be clear headed. The root of the word was the idea of being free from intoxication. In other words, in that society, if you were sober, you were in your right mind, you were thinking correctly. And it points to being a moderate person, avoiding extravagance and overindulgence. It is seen in someone that has correct priorities. That's the idea. It's someone who thinks correctly, has, has organized their life in a way that they use their time, finances, and energy carefully. And that word carefully, I would say, is better used biblically. You use your finances, you use your time, and use your energy in a biblical way for God's purpose. <laughs> it translates to someone that is satisfied with fewer or simpler things. I wanted to give the whole breadth of it, though, because to be clear-headed means you take all the peripheral things and distraction of this world, and you're able to filter out things that would distract from the priority of God's kingdom, that you're going to take what you've been given. And the reality is, and Paul starts here uh, for a reason, because you've been given a lot. The time on earth has allowed wisdom, and that wisdom should be translated in people who are clear-headed, who have their priorities set. And so when it says they're satisfied with fewer or simpler things, is the idea is because they've weeded out those things, because those things are no longer necessary. So they're sober, and they're also grave. And the meaning here is dignified or worthy of respect. And here's the importance. It means that someone is not frivolous, trivial, or superficial. It doesn't have this idea of snootiness, right? When you think someone is dignified, we think they're walking around with their nose in the air, looking down on everyone else. That they're too good to stoop to different levels is not at all what it's talking about. The idea of being worthy of respect is not putting on airs. Instead, it's this idea that you've gotten rid of the the fake things in life, the frivolous or trivial components of life. It's seen in someone that doesn't laugh or enjoy what is sinful and ungodly. And I want to pause there for a second because that needs to sink into our lives. What's funny to you? What do you laugh at? Will you temper your humor when you recognize that it's pointed to ungodliness? 
Will you make a change? See, because he's saying here, you're not going to laugh and enjoy what is sinful and ungodly. You're not going to mock the pain and suffering of others. And so you realize what dignified means. Again, you're getting a picture of someone with clear priorities. Someone who says, I'll be worthy of respect. It's not about building themselves up, but instead be worthy of respectful things that you're known for what you pinpoint. And all things there to be temperate. And that means they're self-controlled. And that idea is here because we look at someone, oh, he's in control of himself. Uh, we're actually diving into the more spiritual passions and, and the physical side of life. It it's, it's points to someone that is in control of physical passions. They have regulated themselves. They're not out of control. It is seen in the rejection of worldly standards and priorities. Sadly, I've, I've watched certain people I've read and, and appreciated, and they're older men, aged, that write books and, and have done a great ministry, but I've watched them get sucked into the worldly standards and priorities of life. Have they fallen into some gross sin? No. Have they taken what the world deems important and made it important for them? They have. In other words, they failed the description that Paul gave of being temperate, of having self-control. They reject worldly standards and priorities, and they resist worldly attractions. Their disposition is someone that is clear-headed with correct biblical priorities, not trivial or frivolous, meaning they're dignified, and in control of their physical passions, and specifically not under the control of the world's passions. Additionally, older men are to be sound. And so if you're looking at the list that's laid out here, there's four things. So sober, grave, temperate, and then they're to be sound. And then under this idea of sound are certain descriptions given in categories that they're supposed to be sound. And that's that same word again. So that word comes up a lot in Titus. And that's the idea of being whole, the idea of being healthy, the idea of godly perspective, complete, growing, stimulating growth, healthy. Those are all things that come up with the word sound. And so Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the older men saying, I want you to be sound. If you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s and beyond, you're to be found whole, healthy, grounded, and growing. Sound in faith. And what he means by that is the faith, actually, not just in faith in general. I have faith to do this. I have faith to accomplish this. <clears throat> I hear oftentimes as, as you talk in different scenarios, different churches, and people talk about, well, we're going to have faith that we're going to accomplish that. That's not what he's talking about here at all. Um, he's talking about this idea of the faith. It means you trust God in every way. You're not questioning his divine plan or wisdom. You don't doubt his word, nor do you waver in your sure and steady hope found in your Savior. In other words, if you're sound in the faith, what Paul is say, saying here, and they have the article the, sound in the faith in Greek, very specific, that means you are grounded in your salvation. You know for whom you live. You know where your hope is fixed. It is something that people know about you. And it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person when doubts arise. What Paul is driving to is as you mature in Christ, there needs to be the erasing of doubt, that you are not to be questioning his divine plan. You are supposed to be resting in him. You are sound in the faith and you're sound in love. That's that word. It says charity there. And that means you manifest a healthy love toward God, his people, and to the lost. 
Your love is not a fragile emotion. So many people in church are fragile. They're passionate about something and they get this, the first bump, the first hit, the first pain, and suddenly they shift and they're completely gone. I can't believe it. I've been betrayed. This person's done this and, and they're gone in a second. That's not the love God's talking about. It's not a fragile emotion swayed by the circumstances of life nor the response of others. God's love that he expects believers to display as he's calling older men to display is not a love that has to be reciprocated for you to continue loving. I hope I'm making my point. You're to be loving and you have no excuse not to be. That's what Paul is saying. Instead, it's a love that replicates our Savior's love a love that comes from God's grace and enabling. You're right if you're having this thought, I can't do that. You can't. You're not capable of it without God's grace and mercy flowing through you. It's his love being exemplified out there. They're going to live out 1 John 4, 7 and 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. In other words, you love because it is an identifying characteristic of being a Christian. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Why do you love? Not because it's reciprocated. Why do you love? Not because the circumstances dictate it or make it easy. I can promise you this. It's always going to be hard to love. That it's all always going to be easy. It's probably always going to have some sense of difficulty in there. God has not called us to an easy love. It is a hard love, and the word he uses is an agape love. It is a God-empowered love. And in everything, there to remain steady, and that's sound in steadfastness. And the word you'll see oftentimes is patience, but we think of patience like hearing an annoying sound on a chalkboard and saying, I can endure this, and we see that as patience, or they're a good teacher because they're patient with little kids and, and what they say. That's not what that word is, is meaning here in Greek. It's the idea of perseverance through hardship. The older man in this context is called to accept disappointment biblically, which is a tough thing to do. We, we tend to see ourselves handling the extremes, the problems that are so intense, and we say, oh, look at him stand in the battle. Look at the martyr that was burned at the stake. Look at the person that was killed on the mission field. And those are things that are worthy of, of looking at and, and seeing how strong and how they persevered through that hardship. But you know where we crumble oftentimes? At disappointment. Are you going to face disappointment? Well, we live in a sin-stricken world, so there's a chance you will. You might be disappointed in yourself. You might be disappointed in your children. You might be disappointed in your grandchildren. You might be disappointed in a host of different things but they accept disappointment biblically, satisfied, and this is the kicker, even when personal desires and plans are unfulfilled. That's what it means to be steadfast. How many older men can be floundering around trying to prove themselves, trying to have their thing, to have their mark, to make their, their, uh, their, their mark on the world or put themselves on the, on the wall, so to speak, how do you endure and why do you endure and what is God calling you? You endure because you're so linked to God's kingdom and you see his purpose even when you don't understand it. And that's hard. You see his purpose 
you understand he's working, you trust him, even though you may not understand it, they believe and live out Romans 8, 28, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You are steadfast. You are patient. You endure. Why? Because your focus, your vision, your ideas on what God's going to accomplish, and you believe his word. And his word says he's working all of it for his good. And that's why we're here, to serve him. I put here, age often ties to maturity and wisdom, but aging can also be a difficult journey and hard to accept. It can be plagued with settled disappointments, unfulfilled dreams and aspirations, lost opportunities. Aging can prompt an entitlement feeling, an arrived emotion that perceives a responsibility in the rest of the world to cater to you. It can result in I've done my part mentality that negates any prompting to work. I'm probably stepping on toes. I get that. Because all of this is not going to be accepted in God's eyes. On top of that, it becomes easy to become settled in certain ways or habits and then be desensitized to conviction. I think we've all heard the expression, he's stuck in his ways. I've heard that used against me. I drink tea. I drink tea with non-fat milk in it. I say non-fat because when I say skim milk at Starbucks, they put steam milk in. So I'm very particular. I'm so particular that I pour my own milk in. I don't even let the Starbucks employee put my milk in my tea. It's that, that's that intricate, important. Heather says, why don't you drink something else? I'm like, I've always, I always drank tea. Come to find out my mom put it in my bottle. It's my mom's fault. So I've, I've been drinking tea for more than 40 years. That's a long habit. I am stuck in my ways. The other one I love is they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And guess what the old dog is? It's always male. Never never a female dog. It's always a male dog. It can't be taught what to do. And here's the reality. We get set in our ways, and then we rarely can see that behavior correctly or have the right perspective about it. Why? Because we can't see it in God's eyes, how he sees it. And therefore, we can miss sins that have become established in our lives and then lack the biblical insight to discern them and to change them. I say all that because there's a a wonderful opportunity of wisdom and maturity that God is calling the older men in the church to fulfill. He's calling all men in the church to see and, and, and strive for. But he's calling there, but there's a reality to being aged that requires us to talk about this opportunity because all those adages I gave, all those ideas of entitlement, and I've done my part, I'm checking out, I'm doing all those things, those things are not accepted in God's eyes. Those norms are not okay for him. His expectation of older Christian men is greater love of God and his children, greater service in his church, not some service not once in a while service, not okay service, greater service, greater love, greater service. And then he's expecting a bold holiness that is an example to the whole congregation. His expectation for a healthy church from the older men is greater service, greater love, and bold holiness, a greater example. His expectation is a clear-headed man with correct biblical priorities, dignified and in control of their physical passions, 
and unswayed by the world's. Men that are healthy and whole in their faith, in their love and in their endurance. Men who have their eyes fixed on his kingdom, are working for his glory, and are rejoicing in the great joy of seeing their Savior face to face. Age gives you perspective, doesn't it? It gives you this hunger. And as you are longing to see your Savior, that longing is not a checked out nothingness, but instead a passion that is pumped into the life of the church and is then imprinted on the next generation. They're not consumed with their position and legacy, their control and their rights. Instead, they find a clear purpose and a continually growing service to him and for his purpose. They have not checked out, but are determined to finish the course and to finish it strong. Paul makes it clear that older men, and I put by extension the whole congregation, must take a deep look at themselves. Do we find in ourselves soberness, dignity, and self-control? I've been constantly referencing the older men, but now understand that God's word is given to us, and we're called, all of us, to these same attributes, to displaying these things in the life around us. Why? And don't forget the point, so that we can imprint in our society, that we can be the light, that we can be the beacon for his gospel truth. Are we sound, healthy in our faith, in godly love, and in our steadfastness? Paul, again, is highlighting areas of focused need in the different stages of life, but in no way removing the conviction for all of us to apply the characteristic presented. We're going to see that by the repeated word, likewise, meaning so too and also found throughout this chapter. He's going to constantly be connecting back. One, Titus, you're supposed to confront all groups, and also all groups are supposed to engage with the truth that's there. In two weeks, we'll be diving into the, the rest of this chapter. It goes into what deals with the younger women, some of the more controversial things. But understand this, there's application for men in there too, that they need to apply the truth that he's saying there. That there's going to be application all the way through it. But he's picking certain stages of life to work through. And so now we move to the next one, and it's the older women. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And his move now to the ladies, again, on the classic side of life. It's the same term used of the men, and so it points to women at least 50 and above. And again, as with the men, the whole reference point is that you're in the final third of life. You are seeing the, I would hate to say sunset years, but it's looking at how you'll finish. And so Paul highlighting this points out needed biblical characteristics with this age life stage that is most suited to emphasize them. And his clarion cry begins with holiness, behavior as becometh holiness, meaning they need to have a holy demeanor. And it points to holiness that permeates the full range of human conduct. Holiness that is formative in all respects and on all occasions. What is his cry to the older women as he starts out? What is the example that they're going to be set? Is they're going to be setting an example to the world and, and specifically to the church? And actually, he's going to hone in on their training of people in the church very specifically. 
But he's saying your, your behavior is to be holy in every area of life, in all components of life. It's seen in their testimony to God's holiness and their worship of him. A holy demeanor, one that permeates every component of life, means from a worship service to a softball game to a fun gathering with friends, they are constantly highlighting their priority, their focus, and their aim. They are constantly elevating their Savior. In essence, the influence of their presence brings worship into the fabric of everyday life. The reality is this, as you search through Scripture and you look for that word they're using specifically there for the holy demeanor that they're calling women to, this is the conduct of a priest in the temple. What is the priest called to? This word right here, to do what they're doing in a holy way. As they engage in worship, as you read through that, this same word that he's using here is saying, I want you to engage in worship in this reverent or holy way. And so as you apply this to the life of the older woman, as it's, as it's stated here, it's saying that in all that you do, you point people to worshiping the Savior. And I put a note here, it shows everyone to whom they belong. We belong to a holy God. We are his children. And, and Paul is calling out and saying that the church by extension, must be holy in demeanor, that we emphasize who we worship and to whom we belong in everything that we do, because as believers, we belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore our attitude, actions, responses must be such that it points to and highlights His nature, which is holy, His priority and not our own. Every fiber of life should ultimately highlight your identity as a child of the king. And so in light of his call for a holy demeanor, Paul continues now with a warning concerning older women's, and let's be honest, everyone's communication. They are not to gossip, not false accusers. We know words can cut and destroy, and it's far too easy to say things that cannot be taken back and that create an uncontrollable fire. Read James about what a, what a fire is created by the tongue. Just look how quickly words or stories shared can horrifically change someone's life. I did a simple Google search. And the, and the great thing about technology is we can communicate with anyone at any time in any format. The horrible thing is it's been used to destroy people. You want a depressing look at what technology can do? You just go look online and you find how many suicides and teenagers have occurred because people have said malicious gossip online And malicious gossip is words designed to destroy. And you have sad story after sad story of what happens with words and how words can destroy. I think it goes without saying that a church should have no false accusers, no malicious gossips. This is not even referencing someone who is talking around, right? The classic example of a gossip And it's not to condone that behavior, but Paul is actually zeroing in on destructive stories, the ugliness of hurtful intent and destruction with the words and things you say. Paul is confronting verbal abuse in the church and making it clear that it has zero place among God's children. What is he trying to say? Don't be a malicious gossip. 
has a positive side to it. What does he want you to be? If he doesn't want your words to destroy, he wants your words to build. And so what he's trying to tell us is it points to honesty in our communication with the deep goal of edifying the church through our words, not causing destruction. In other words, you filter everything you're going to say, everything you might share, everything you might put out there through the lens of will this build God's church or will it hurt God's church? It's seen in how we refuse to listen to gossip, not just avoid propagating the lies. You are complicit when you listen to gossip. It is a very awkward thing to do, right? Someone starts telling you a juicy story and you say to them, I don't want to hear that. I'm not going to talk about that. That's a false accuser. Well, don't worry. It's true. That's irrelevant in Paul's perspective because does it edify or does it destroy? And oftentimes, you can easily see that the words are not meant to edify. And so we're called to not be gossips I wrote here, gossip evaporates when it has no audience. Malicious gossips with no one to talk to have no one to gossip with. Why does it catch fire? Because people listen. By the way, Satan is the most famous false accuser. That is the same word used to describe him, and his behavior should not be found among God's church. God's name is slandered with gossip, and his people hurt when our tongues are left uncontrolled and used for a worldly goal. And a worldly goal is a destructive goal. God has set a a much higher standard for his church in regard to communication and also in temperance. It says here, not given to much wine. This idea now comes in, and if you remember with the men, they were sober, they were clear-headed, now he's diving into this idea of not given to uh, being out of control, not being under the control of something else. Uh, as often is the case in many parts of the world and through all eras, the people of Crete had given in to overconsumption and intoxication. Whether it was from pain, boredom, ease of access, or anything in between, they had become known, and I would say not uniquely, to be people who were drunks, that were in or under the control of something else. And Paul's saying that's not to be the case with God's people, and it's highlighted now amongst the older women. You might wonder why, why does Paul use the older women to highlight this? And if you think about an older woman in control of her household, they're going to be the ones with constant access to food and drink. Uh, we view We look at our world and we think, well, anyone can get anything. Yes, in our world, anyone can get anything. There's a convenience store in every corner. You can get whatever you want. In ancient culture, that was not the case. And so the one who controlled the household, and that would have been oftentimes the older woman, would have control to all all the drink in the house, all the food in the house, anything they would want. And that access represented a significant temptation, overconsumption, and drunkenness one in which their world freely indulged. So I want you to recognize this is not a a random thing. This is a known thing. This is something that women in Crete would do. And so not doing this points to being controlled by someone else, the Holy Spirit, not by alcohol. 
they would manifest a behavior distinct from those around them and therefore would be a light to Christ in their discipline. When the world around you says, hey, you're at home, you have access to it, you might as well. What harm does it do? Just get drunk, sit there in the house. What could go wrong? You got servants to take care of things. This is what we do. This is how we act. This is Crete. This is the world we live in. And so as these women in the church say, no, we're not going to overindulge in this. We are not going to become intoxicated. We are not going to become controlled by something else. You imagine, what's wrong with you? Why not? I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to be controlled by something else. And so their life becomes a testimony. The, the specific instruction to the older women comes to a close with this overarching call to be teachers of good things. Now, I do want to mention the next verse, verse 4, starts telling them what they should teach younger women. And so by default, what they're teaching younger women is something that they're also exemplifying. And so the call to them is there as well for all the things that are going to be listed uh, in the next message from Titus 2 on that. However, the specific age-related call wraps up with this very general call to be teachers of good things. They're going to be called to train young women, and they're going to deal with what they're going to teach and what young women should be doing, younger women. But they're going to be called to do teaching. And I put teaching good, and you just put those two together. Because the phrase teachers of good things is one word in Greek. It's not split at all. It's not a sentence. It's not a phrase. So when you see teachers of good things, one word. And so I write teaching good. That's all they do. And if you want to change the word from good to biblical, that would be appropriate there. Because it points to a consistent pattern of biblical instruction in a general way. What are you teaching? In general, you're teaching God. You're teaching Bible. You're teaching His principles. The idea is that all of our teaching will be biblical, that it is teaching what is holy and what is good. The older women, and by default the whole congregation, are called to a disposition of holiness to be clearly seen as those identified in Christ, living for Christ. This is what they're, they're highlighting for us. Their communication is to be devoid of malicious gossip, hurtful and destructive words, and in daily living they must manifest temperance distinctively different than the world around them. Their passion and their focus must be the teaching of good, what is holy, what is right, what is biblical, knowing that sharing God's truth warrants the highest priority. And I think you'll notice here, as we look at a holy life that, that imprints on older men, the holy life that imprints on the older women, this driving need to teach what is good. And we're talking about testimony here. We're talking about how we reach out in the world around us, how we share God's truth in the community in which we live. They are manifesting temperance distinctly different from the world around them. Their passion, their focus must be the teaching of good, what is holy right. And again, Paul is on purposely stepping on toes. And he's prodding the older women. Why is he stepping on toes? Because everything he's talking about is accepted in Crete. It is fine to be drunk in Crete. It's fine to be controlled by something else. Uh, for the men, they were known for being frivolous, petty. The men on Crete were ridiculous in their behavior. We've seen that. And so Paul is coming in and saying, in the church, that's not how you're to look. But instead, as he, as he talks to the older women, they're going to be holy in disposition, word and habit, focused on teaching what is good. A healthy church is filled with spiritually functioning believers at all stages and ages 
of life. A healthy church needs all of them to have an evangelistic impact in their community and around the globe. A healthy church needs spiritually functioning believers to be the light in their world. And so the bulk of this chapter touches on those various stages of life. And as I mentioned, is going to close, not the chapter, but this instruction, verse 10 on 9 and 10, deal with how we act in our employment, in our work, and how should we respond in light of, how should we act in light of being his healthy people and accomplishing his kingdom purpose? Our calling is to seriously evaluate our attitude and actions in light of what is seen here in Titus. Chapter 2 is quite the confrontational list. It is designed, it is there to force us to evaluate, examine yourself, which is a calling that we should follow through on. Paul writes that to the church in Corinth, actually, about their salvation. Examine yourself. Be reflective on seeing if this is part of who you are. And as we've seen, Paul touches now first on the older stage of life, 50 and above, and zeroes in on key components that are best highlighted in their stage of life, but by no means does it negate the need in all of our lives. We find that we must be focused on kingdom priorities. As we look at the older men, they were to be focused on kingdom priorities, undistracted with the trivial and frivolous things of this world. Are we? Are we focused on kingdom priorities, or do we find that our focus lands constantly on what we want to do and what we want to accomplish and what we want to take care of? Number two, we're to be biblically balanced, living in control of our passions and emotions. Do we find that we are aligning with what we feel is aligning with what we should feel in Christ and for his church. We must be grounded in the faith, living out a true love for the Lord and his church, persevering in spite of hardships. We are to be living lives of holiness, shaped by our identity in Christ and focused on sharing his truth clearly with the church and the lost world around us. These are the start to the very specific things which become sound doctrine. What Paul is calling Titus to do, this list begins it. You need to talk about these things. This becomes, this is part of, this is living out your doctrine in the everyday life. And so we need to be asking ourselves if our lives are reflecting these characteristics, if our lives are positioned for his glory, proclaiming his truth accurately and clearly to the world around us. Let's pray together. May Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. We're here in Titus, and, and it is very confrontational. It's, it does step on our toes. It does uh, make us think about our lives, make us ponder seriously. If we've, we've lived this life, if we've done what you've called us to do, and I hope that as we as a church step out and, and look at our lives, I hope that conviction and that thought permeates uh, through the week and that we'll take your word and we'll filter our life through the requirements that you've listed here, just starting with verses one through three and understanding what you're calling us to do. And if something needs to change, I, I pray that we have the courage to make that change, to, to change, to adjust our thinking and our life to align with what you've called us to do. In your precious and holy name, amen.